I thought long and hard about how to talk about Afra Ben. She's one of my favourite 17th century playwrights who produced an astonishing number of plays, poems and prose fiction throughout the 1670s and 1680s. Although these days she may be best known for her tragic novella Orinoco, a work that delves into race and romance in 17th century Suriname, her career was made by the witty intrigue comedies that she wrote for the stage, many of which are still performed regularly. Her writing was daring and innovative. She wrote some of the first novels in English, as well as the first full-length English pantomime, although this was very different from what we expect from pantomimes today. Ben also had a dazzling personal life. She travelled to the West Indies. She was a spy. She also introduced milk punch to England, a particularly vile concoction, but then we only drink gin on this show. So much has been written about her life and her work that it could fill 50 evenings worth of podcasts. But what really made me think was Afra Ben's status as a woman in 17th century London. Then I thought about Nell Gwen. Nell Gwen is probably one of the best-known figures of 17th century London, up there with Shakespeare and Samuel Pepys. It helped that she was ridiculously popular in her own time, and not just as the mistress of Charles II, but as a very talented comic actress. Her celebrity rose in the late 1660s, when she was paired with the actor Charles Hart in a series of romantic comedies filled with sparkling dialogue and raunchy humour. A sort of Hepburn and Tracy for their time, they had excellent chemistry and inevitably had an offstage affair. He was about 25 years her senior. But this is about Nell Gwen. She was part of the first generation of professional English actresses, women who acted publicly on the stage and were lauded for the work that they did. Afrofen's friendship with Nell Gwen was known throughout the 17th century, and this was something that I found interesting. So frequently, Nell Gwen is contextualised as a figure in Charles II's harem of women, one of his many mistresses who are constantly sniping at each other in a never-ending foray of one-upmanship in order to gain his attention. Likewise, Afro-Ben is often presented as an outlier female member of an all-boys club, the token woman writer amongst Rochester, Dryden, and the rest. This isn't to say that these characterizations are wrong, there was a lot of rivalry among the king's mistresses, and the 17th century was a bit of a sausage fest when we look at people who produced literature and theatre. However, that's well established. When we take Nell Gwen and Afroban together, they reveal a fascinating story of female integrity during the 17th century. Hi, I'm Mari McNeil, and this is Gin and Gossip, Theatre History Between the Acts. The date that Nell Gwen gave out for her birth was 1650. This, of course, might not be entirely true, but she was unlikely to have been very much older, and may in fact have been a year or two younger. Her upbringing does not stand out among the many working-class people of the 17th century, but her story after she rose to fame definitely does. Gwen grew up in the streets around Drury Lane with her mother and her older sister. Her father was probably a captain in the Royalist Army during the Civil Wars, who died when Nell was very young. Very little is known about her mother's background, except that she worked as a prostitute to support her small family, and was known as something of a dragon lady. Nell grew up working in her mother's boarding house, and later sold oranges in the theatre aisles. Later still, she became an actress where she caught the eye of Charles II. 
first half of the 17th century, women didn't act on the stage. There are some pretty big caveats to that statement, however. The women who disguised themselves as boy actors so that they could act are famous, but there are other women who are known to have performed. Noble women certainly acted in court masks, away from the general public, but in the presence of their wealthy peers is a bit of fun. And Mrs. Edward Coleman also performed a part in a 1658 opera, a technicality as she was supposedly not acting but singing. And certainly some women were very involved with the everyday running of the theatres. The Queen's consort to James I and Charles I were active theatre patrons, and the businesswoman Elizabeth Beeston was actively involved with the management of the Cockpit Phoenix Theatre during the first half of the 17th century. However, despite this ongoing female involvement in the London theatres, traditionally the main female parts on the public stage, Juliet, Portia, Miranda, they were all played by young men. That was how it had always been done, dating back to the Middle Ages, and there was no good reason to change things. This was until Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660. Charles had spent the past decade wandering through fashionable 17th century Europe, and he had inevitably caught a few plays while he was there. He was especially taken with a pretty woman he'd seen on the French stage. Why not, he asked himself, upon his return to England, continue the fun and make actresses a regular part of the London stage? This would also resolve an additional contemporary concern, the idea that a man dressing up as a woman and acting a feminine role was something that only a gay man would do. At least that was what was beginning to be commonly believed. Charles may have had a rather laissez-faire attitude towards sex in general, but homosexuality made him anxious. And so it was settled, women on the stage playing female parts, for now and forever. It would be wrong to describe these first actresses as finding equal status with their male counterparts. Not only was there some suspicion about the moral character of a woman who would act on the public stage, but these early actresses were typically paid less than the men. Many of them looked to finding wealthy protectors to make up the shortfall, men who would give them expensive gifts and annual pensions as compensation for their time and attention. Still, it was a start. Nell first entered the theatres when she was about 13. She was one of Mary Meggs's orange girls. Mrs Meggs, a widow and a former board, had been given full, free and sole liberty, licence, power and authority to vend, utter and sell oranges, lemons, fruit, sweetmeats and all manner of fruiterers and confectioners' wares to the theatre on Bridges Street, which was occupied by the King's Company. That's where John Dryden was developing his talent as a dramatic writer. As an orange girl, Nell Gwen wore a neat white outfit and bantered with the playgoers between the acts. After about a year of this, she caught the eye of the theatre's manager, Thomas Killigrew, who suspected that she'd have good stage presence, and the Earl of Rochester, a belligerent friend who quarrelled with Dryden, may have helped to prepare her for acting before an audience. Nell's popularity may have been aided by the fact that the part she played frequently required her to dress up as a boy, and this meant wearing tights and breeches, all the better to see her shapely legs and hips. She also launched a fashion for being painted naked, Samuel Pepys kept a copy of a picture of her undressed in the character of Cupid in his private cabinet. Still, I don't want to be too cynical about Nell's stage presence and her talent as a comedian. During her time on the stage, she built up a dedicated fan base, and the people of London seemed to have had a genuine affection for her, and she was well known for her sparkling wit. Once, her carriage was booed by the public, who believed that it was carrying Louise de Carouet, Charles II's French mistress, who was very unpopular. 
Nell stuck her head out of the window and shouted to them, Good people, I am the English whore. Nell Gwen's time on the stage was relatively short compared to many actors of her era. She spent much of it in relationships with three men, all called Charles. Charles Hart, her co-star, Charles Sackville, the Lord Buckhurst, a witty rake who had been drawn to her by a flash of her leg on stage, and Charles II, the king, who she called Charles III for her own amusement. This last Charles, the affair that helped her to go down in history, began in late 1667 or early 1668, and continued until Charles's death in 1685. During this time, she gave birth to two of his sons, who were given the politically astute names Charles and James. Gwen continued to be a working mother until 1671. She acted on stage even after her eldest son had been born, and that year the king granted her a house at 79 Pall Mall, and she became a great society hostess. Having her own house in a nice part of London provided her with a sphere of power in which she could entertain guests who were as clever and witty as she. Charles II's appreciation for continental culture didn't end at the stage door. He was also influenced by the clothes, the furniture, and the cosmopolitan wit, and Nell's house, which she set up to ensure that the king spent as much time as possible there, reflected these modern tastes. She held elaborate banquet suppers, put on skits, and played games in her large garden. But we must not think of her as confined to the home. In London society, she was a consummate gambler, spending hours at the gaming tables with the other royal mistresses. She also spent time at court, where her witty remarks were reported with much amusement. During this time of her life, the 1670s, she was happy, pretty, and rich. Indeed, she often had more ready cash to hand than her aristocratic friends. During one evening of revelry with Charles II, his brother James, and several of their courtiers, it was discovered that the king had no money to pay for their meal. Rolling her eyes, Nell pulled out her own purse and paid the innkeeper, exclaiming, Lord, what a poor company I have fallen into. Let's pause on this scene of merriment to turn to the second subject of today's episode, Afro Ben. Perhaps rather surprisingly, we know significantly less about Afro Ben's early life than we do of Nell Gwen's. She was born in Kent, probably, in 1640, possibly, to a family called Johnson, perhaps. The Johnsons may have had some connection to the local gentry, but much of this is conjecture from information provided by those who knew her after her death, some of which is conflicting and can't always be matched to historical record. We know nothing of her girlhood, although her biographer Maureen Duffy believes that she may have been a sickly child. She grew up in hardened ruralist country during the interregnum, which likely helped to establish her political loyalties early on in life. Afro Ben would one day be one of Charles II's best propagandists in the 1670s. Afro moved to Suriname with her family when she was in her early 20s, where they worked as planters, and while there she may have witnessed the slave uprising which inspired her to write her novel Orinoco many decades later. She left Suriname in 1664 after a brief love affair with a man called William Scott. The following year, once back in England, she may have met James, Duke of York, later James II, in Yorkshire, an event that impressed her greatly. She then came to London, where she probably married a man with the surname Ben, or Bain, who was supposed to have been a Dutch merchant who died in the plague in 1666. Her life story, you can see from all these probabilities and perhapses, is scrappy and seems to come from all over the place. I'm reporting all this from the biographies written about her, but there are so many gaps and places and conflicting information that it's difficult to know what is accurate. 
We are now up to the mid-1660s, and at this stage, Charles II is still riding on the first wave of popularity he enjoyed immediately after being restored to the throne. Now Gwen's career as an actress is flourishing, but Afroban had not yet begun her own theatrical career. Rather, she was working as a spy in the Netherlands, England's great enemy during the 17th century. And it was her time here that led to the career that eventually made her name. Afro-Ben made contact with William Scott, her old paramour from Suriname, who worked as part of a spy ring. He set her up in Antwerp under the codename Aristrea, where she was to amass information on the plans that the Dutch had for war. When her time there was over, however, and she was due to be paid, wouldn't you know it, but Charles II couldn't find his wallet. Unable to pay the bill she had racked up, Ben ended up in debtor's prison. Desperately short on cash, Af returned to the stage, not as an actress, but as a writer, the first major woman playwright of the 17th century. Now, I don't want to give the impression that female playwrights were unknown during this period. Ben was preceded by Elizabeth Carey, Catherine Phillips, and Elizabeth Polwill, all of whom produced at least one play during their lifetimes. At the end of the century, De La Rivia Manley, Mary Picks, and Catherine Trotter were scorned by unkind critics, despite producing some of the most commercially successful theatre of the 1690s. Ben was not unique in that respect. Nevertheless, Ben definitely stands out as a dramatist. She was certainly the first English woman who was able to sustain herself by her pen alone, and, interestingly, her gender largely did not cause her plays to be looked on as novelties, none of this talking dog stuff. On top of her spy work, she had spent the past few years developing a reputation as a poet, and in 1670 she joined the Duke's Company. Although she was a staunch royalist, and the Duke's Company had a reputation for being slightly more critical of the crown than its rival the King's Company, it is possible that her placement there was to provide some much-needed balance. Of course, her writing career wasn't all roses. When she was criticised, she was plagued by accusations that she was not the real author of her work, that her plays must have been written by her friend, Edward Ravenscroft, or her lover, John Hoyle. Ravenscroft was a fellow playwright, it is true, but less talented than she, while Hoyle, a violent, promiscuous fop, showed little creative talent. When he died a violent death at the wrong end of a sword in 1692, it was probably no better than he deserved. Yet, despite various snide comments, the sort of which many female authors still find themselves on the receiving end of today, to be honest, the fact that Afro-Ben was a woman does not seem to have impacted how well her plays were received. The Rover, which was probably her most successful play, and certainly the one with the most longevity, was very popular. Written in 1677, when Ben was at the height of her career, it told the story of Charles II's adventures in Europe during the years of his exile, while Cromwell was in power in England, and before Charles was restored to the throne. In Ben's play, the Cavaliers are poor but noble-spirited. They drink, they fight, and romance their way across Europe, sure of themselves and of their right to conquer all. Their circumstances may be temporarily embarrassed, but one day, one day they will reign again. Afra's dramatic career was on the rise just as Nell's was fading. Nevertheless, the two women did know one another, and Nell was very supportive of Afra's work. Nell probably saw Afra's plays performed in the early years, and a more formal meeting may have been set up through the Earl of Rochester. Rochester was one of Ben's most generous patrons, and as one of the king's gentlemen of the chamber, he was a well-known figure around court, who socialised regularly with Nell Gwen. It has been speculated that Rochester and Gwen had a romantic relationship, but who can really say? 
What did it mean for women to be friends in the 17th century? During this period, the idea of a neoplatonic friendship was idealised. This was an eternal affection between one soul and two bodies, as it is described. Academics who have done work on friendship between women have drawn attention to the idea of stability that permeates women's relationships beyond the Civil War. It has been speculated that women's friendships revolved around domestic life more than men's. And this makes sense. While men consolidated their relationships at the alehouse, women visited one another's houses, creating intricate social networks consisting of family members and friends and dependents. A lot of these friendships between women seem to me to foreshadow the idea of the romantic friendships which were to arise a century later. Romantic friendships refer to the relationships that women could have one another, friendships that were emotionally close and to an extent even physically intimate but without being sexual. Friends would exchange vows of love, hold hands and even sleep in the same bed. The romantic friendship is a very 18th and 19th century idea but I think it's one that we see emerging in the late 17th century. In William Congreve's play, The Way of the World, written in 1700 and often regarded as one of the finest examples of restoration comedy, the hero warns his mistress that after they are married, she will be permitted to admit no sworn confidant or intimate of your own sex, no she-friend to screen her affairs under your countenance and tempt you to make trial of a mutual secrecy. Women who are friends with one another could have incredible influence over one another's lives, much to the suspicion of their husbands as these friendships could transcend the power of marriage. The friendships that now Gwen had with other women were complex. She certainly socialised with her rivals for the king's affections. She and the Duchess of Portsmouth were regulars at the gambling table together, for example. Elsewhere, she found a protégé in Elizabeth Barry, who became one of the leading tragic actresses on the stage during the 1670s. This young woman was also the Earl of Rochester's mistress, but unlike Nell, she never completely left the stage. She had a long career that only ended three years before her death in 1710. She debuted on the London stage at about the same time as Nell Gwen was just settling down in her Pall Mall house, and the younger woman's talent must have impressed Gwen. They became close friends, with Nell helping Elizabeth advance on the stage as well as in her private life. When Elizabeth gave birth to Rochester's child in 1677, it was Nell who pointedly reminded the Earl that the new mother would need some financial support. Likewise, Afra Ben held many close friendships with other women. Ben was a great admirer of Catherine Phillips, a poet who wrote under the pseudonym Orinda and was renowned for her work in praise of friendship between women. In her later years, Ben produced similar semi-erotic poetry, such as To Clorinda, Who Made Love to Me, imagined as more than a woman. Like Nell Gwen, she made sure to nurture good relations with the actresses and regularly wrote good parts for Elizabeth Barry. But what about how Nell Gwen and Afra Ben got on with each other? The two women were both part of the same friendship circle, being on good terms with Elizabeth Barry and the Earl of Rochester throughout the 1670s. But even outside of the pressures of social diplomacy, Gwen and Ben had a great deal in common. They were both politically Tory, Gwen through her personal relationship with the King, and Ben through her Kentish upbringing and her subsequent sponsorship by the Duke of York. They were also both women who had worked hard and overcome hardship to stand out in the theatre. Gwen spent her early years working in brothels alongside her mother and sister. Ben endured poverty and imprisonment. Both of them made a name for themselves as theatrical geniuses. Finally, they were both natural comics. Ben, although she dabbled in tragedy, found her greatest successes with the exciting intrigue comedy she wrote. Likewise, Gwen, 
although her education was minimal and she was functionally illiterate, was notorious for her quick wit and willingness to clown around. We can tell something of what Afro thought of now, and perhaps even their relationship with one another, by looking at Afro's 1679 comedy, The Feigned Courtesans, which carried a dedication to Nell. Plays were not very often dedicated to Nell Gwen, indeed only two others are known, possibly because she was not commonly thought of as having sufficient influence, in spite of her close relationship with the king. The Feigned Courtesans taps into many of the themes that Nell had acted out a decade earlier, cross-dressing women, female wit, and sexual freedom. Placing the comedy under the most perfect beauty and the greatest goodness in the world, Mrs. Ellen Gwen, Ben implores her friend to look kindly on her work. She reflects on their long friendship and admires her for being infinitely fair, witty, and deserving. Ben also makes a rather pointed remark about the reception of female wit in the 17th century, berating the malicious world that will allow a woman no wit, but that they must be grateful for living in an age that can produce so wondrous an argument as your undeniable self, that's Nell Gwen, to shame those boasting talkers who are judges of nothing but faults. Of course, dedications aren't always reliable. However, the friendship between Gwen and Ben was well known, one of Gwen's great rivals for the king's affections was the actress Moll Davis. One day, Gwen and Ben were having lunch together, when Ben produced a herb that she had learnt about in Suriname. Slip Moll Davis some of this, the writer told her friend, and the king will be all yours tonight. Gwen followed her instructions, and the herb, it turned out, was a powerful laxative. Gwen spent the night in the king's bed, Moll Davis spent it on the toilet. Gwen and Ben were part of a close network of friends, artists and political allies of whom women made up an important number. Sadly, 1679 was the beginning of the end for both women's way of life. This was around the time when everything began to go wrong for the king and the royal family. Charles II particularly was having money troubles and the fact that he was spending so much of it on his mistresses was not viewed favourably by the general public. More seriously, there was a constitutional crisis on the horizon. By the end of the 1670s, it was becoming clear that Charles II's 20-year marriage to Catherine of Braganza, who was a very nice lady, was not going to produce a legitimate child. This meant that Charles's brother James, the Duke of York, would be his heir. This was very controversial. James was a Catholic, and, it was rumoured, had signed a pact with the Pope in Rome to reintroduce Catholicism to England. In 1683, Charles's illegitimate son, the Duke of Monmouth, was implicated in a conspiracy known as the Rye House Plot, which aimed to murder Charles and James. The plot collapsed, and Monmouth was obliged to retreat into self-imposed exile in Europe for two years. In 1685, after Charles had died, Monmouth returned to England to rise up in rebellion against his uncle James. Once again, Monmouth hoped to be crowned king himself, but his hopes were frustrated. His little army was easily defeated, and Monmouth fled, only to be captured in a field of peas. His uncle had him executed for treason the following week. Against this political theatre, these years also brought personal tragedies to Nell Gwen and Afro Ben. In 1679, Gwen's mother drowned in a fish pond, having fallen over in a drunken stupor. Their good friend, Rochester, died the following year, driven to his grave through drink and syphilis. In 1681... Gwen's younger son, James, died of an unknown illness while away at school in France. Ben's personal life was also increasingly disastrous. In 1682, she was arrested alongside her friend, Lady Slingsby, an actress who had done fairly well for herself in marrying a baronet. A few years later, she fell ill. In 1684, 
her coach overturned outside a tavern with the colourful name of a scarlet whore. Ben escaped with just a sprained wrist, but unsurprisingly it seemed to have affected her ability to write. The following year she fell sick with a mysterious illness which had arthritic symptoms. This illness was to recur throughout the rest of her life. Nell Gwen died of a stroke in 1687, not even 40 years old. Two years later, Aphra Ben followed her to the grave. On her grave marker at Westminster Abbey is inscribed the sombre warning, Here lies a proof that wit can never be defence enough against mortality. Gin and Gossip was written and produced by me, Mari McNeil. Show notes can be found on ginandgossip.wordpress.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Twitter at ginandgossippod.